big rocks and all that sort of thing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to, uh, I was going to say a special edition of the Meatwall podcast, but of course they're all special. And none more so than when my guest is himself, the green man from fair Dublin town, the one and only, please God, Fergal <laughs> Trainer. How are you, Fergal? Oh, very well, Mick. Thanks for that introduction. Um, they get better each time, I must say. Well, I, 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 I aim high. You know, I, I'm not one to just bash things out, you know? Yeah, so I can see from your latest book, which I've read a few uh, stories from already. Oh, oh. I'm going to ask you about that, but before I do, um, we're Zooming as I'm recording you on the audio or whatever I'm doing, but we're also Zooming. We are Zooming. So does this mean, does this mean people will see this? Well, not unless you want them to. I don't know if anyone needs to see my unmade bed on my clothes horse, but uh, I don't mind if they do end up seeing them. <laughs> well, you know, I could, I mean, uh, you've got an unmade bed. I've got an unmade head. You know, <laughs> I, I, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been down in the hole. The, the wife and kids have been away in Cornwall while I try and finish my fucking Eagles book. Um, and so I haven't had to, Dole myself up for anybody. Consequently, this. You nice. Know. I see. Yeah, I was going to get some makeup on for you, but in the end, I just ran out of time. Nah, it's all right. It's okay. I hope you're going to call it your fucking Eagles book. That'd be a great title. <laughs> Before we get on to that, though, tell me. So, I, I, you, uh, you got a copy of Down and Out in London and LA. I did. And did you read any of it yet? I've Don't read, lie to I've me. I've read about five stories from it so far. Wow. So you're really gripped. Well, I was actually in the middle of another book, so I picked it up, had a glance. Oh, oh well, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> what, what was the other book? Uh, it was a book by a man called Brian Gewertz, who's a, he was a writer for WWE, or the WWF uh, wrestling company. Um, and he became quite close with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and now works for him in his production company uh, to this day. So um, that's whose book I'm reading. Well, sounds a little bit gay, but uh, <laughs> only to be expected from yourself. You it's, well, we live in 2022. Gay is not an insult these days, Mick. Come on. No, no, no. Well, I didn't mean it as an insult. I'm just, it's a compliment, really, you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, I, I'm going to take a, but the five stories you read. Which was your favourite? Um, the Santa Claus one jumped out at me. So initially I thought it was another autobiography. I don't know why I thought that, but I, I see that some of the stories are from your childhood. Um, some of them are, they look 
straightforward autobiographical and some of them I think are symbolically autobiographical is would that be fair to say <laughs> um they're all autobiographical but um they don't adhere to any autobiographical rules um a couple of them do a couple of them do particularly the the childhood ones um there didn't seem to be any need to put any slant at all on those they did it all by themselves um, the other things veer between me just having a powerful urge to write something down, uh, and I suppose you'd call it whimsical. They don't, they don't, there's not much whimsy in the book, but whimsical in the sense of, um, just letting my imagination run free. None of those stories were written for publication, they were never re- uh, written to be shown to anybody or, oh, look what I did, you know. Yeah. It was just uh, a, a compulsion. Comp- I have compulsive writing disorder, <laughs> uh, which compels me to write any old bollocks that comes into my head. CWD. Um, that's, that's, that's the one, yeah. There are more sufferers from that than you might know. <laughs> But we we keep it we keep it on the down low, you know. I think Neil Young might have that. The speed with which he releases albums these days, uh, a bit of bit of CWD going on there. Yeah, I quite like it. I, I I've always loved this idea of being able to um, bash it out. You know, I love these guys that uh, go in and do an album. You know, in like five days. I, I love that idea. You know, just that energy. Hmm. Um, the closest I've come to it professionally is when I've written um, completely opportunistic books. The first one I, uh, not the first one, but what the first one I did that was any good uh, was John Peel. I, I wrote that in two weeks. Yeah, uh, he he just died. And uh, I was told, if you could do it in two weeks, we'll put it out. And I thought, there's no way you can do a, write a book in two weeks. But I said yes, I needed the money. <laughs> and I did it. Yeah. And it was, it, it was a trip. It was a trip. And then I did that again when Lou Reed died in 2013. Um, two weeks, a complete trip. I remember the final afternoon standing up as I typed because I, I had to leave at a certain time because I was going to London to interview Ozzy Osbourne. Okay. And uh, so it was a trip. You know, it was a trip. It was sort of like I would do all my books like that if I could, but because no one wants me to. You know, they don't, it's not like it has to be done or we can't have the book. You know, you can't fake it. You can't fake that kind of urgency, that sort of gun to your head. Do you find you work better with the pressure like that, the gun to your head? Always. I mean, this Eagles book, I did the deal for this Eagles book back in 2018. It was this time of year when I was writing this big, long proposal. I had this... um, you know, this idea to write this tremendously epic, monumental book. 
And I didn't sit down to start writing it till this year. And in the meantime, I'd written about five other books. And so uh, this hasn't been done in two weeks, I wish. <laughs> but it has been done at some speed, shall we say. Um, and yeah, I do prefer it. I, 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 I do prefer it. Both ways are good if you've got the time. I just never have the time. I really never, ever have the time, you know. Sure. Um, today, we were going to talk about Iron Maiden. Are you still up for that? Yeah. The Maiden. Uh, that's the very... Now you are You are their number one fan at this point, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm up there, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, there's a rotating top five, but I'm usually in there, yeah. Who could be more number one than you? <laughs> I don't know. There's... Who could be more of a power slave than you? I, th- I think you're the power slave by the sound of way, the way you write your books. <laughs> now I'm just running free. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Running Free was another Iron Maiden biography. You didn't write that one. But you did write the official Iron Maiden biography back in 98. But uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you first came in contact with the band, do you remember when you first heard the term, the new wave of British heavy metal? Were you writing back then? And what did you think of it? Were you interested in it? Not only was I writing back then, um, but the idea of doing a story for sounds called the new wave of British heavy metal was offered to me. Uh, by Jeff Barton, and he had this idea, actually I think it was Alan Lewis who was the editor in those days, a a wonderful guy, very smart, very funny, big drinker, and um, because the new new wave was the thing at the time, and one of the uh, uh, kind of counterweights to new wave was the fact that heavy metal was considered the devil. Well, not even the devil. It was considered a desperately sad old man locked in an attic that we don't talk about. And Alan had this kind of typical Alan idea to do a thing called the new wave of heavy metal, Uh, which sounds quite cool all these years later, but at the time just sounded so naff. Um, And then it was Jeff Barton who finessed that and said to Al, why don't we do two stories? The first will be on the new wave of American heavy metal. And the second story, at the time, the lesser story, would be a new wave of British heavy metal. And so they agreed to do that. And Jeff was going to do the American, because that would have meant going to America. Of course. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, and in fairness, he he was that guy in those days. Um, I'd never actually been to America at that point. And so he rang me and s- sold the whole concept to me. And it was like, so you will do the new wave of British heavy metal. And my heart sank because <laughs> I'm like, what are you fucking like what like who you know and he said well there's this band in Sheffield and I'm like Sheffield (laughs) fuck that you want me to get on a train and go to Sheffield to talk to a fucking bunch of unknowns that have never had a record out yeah he said well no no there's some in London you know there's one out in East London 
I'm like, East London. <laughs> you know, that's like the, the shittiest part of London. Yeah. Um, and no Google Maps, you know, no mobile phones. You had to, like, get an A to Z of London and see where the buses went, you know. I'm like, wow, that sounds so shit. And he goes, um, and there's a there's a heavy metal disco mm-hmm. uh, called the Bandwagon, uh, and they play a lot of this uh, new wave metal music. I thought, God. And he goes, and they they have um, they bring their own toy guitars. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this gets fucking better and better. How shit is this? But at the time, I was uh, 20. And uh, I'm like, oh, absolutely. Oh, that sounds amazing, you know. Um, Thinking, how do I get out of this? Um, And then literally at that same moment, it overlapped with me being offered a job as a regional press officer for a publicity company called Heavy Publicity. Yeah. And they did Sabbath and Journey and Dire Straits and all these people. Um, And it was 50 quid a week cash, uh, which in 1979 was not to be sniffed at. And it just sounded much more fun. And... uh, so I literally had to ring Jeff back a week or two later and offer my profound apologies because I, would, I was so looking forward to <laughs> writing about this fucking load of rubbish that he'd come up with. So th- um, this is interesting because Jeff Barton is always credited as the person who, a lot of the time probably incorrectly credited as the person who came up with the new, the term the new wave of British heavy metal mm. but definitely yeah. credited as the person who championed it or one of the early champions of it so are you saying that Mick Wall could have been not famous for a Guns N' Roses song but fa- being famous for championing the new wave of British heavy metal had you uh, picked a different path absolutely um, I mean Jeff drew the short straw because Uh, At the time, I think there were literally only three people on the magazine that would write about metal. Jeff was one. I was one. The other one was Pete Mikowski. uh, And Pete was away in Thailand doing one of those, I'm away for nine months with a backpack. (laughs) Okay. So Jeff couldn't find anybody stupid enough to say, well, I'll do the new wave of British heavy metal story. I mean, it just sounded, it stank. It reeked of a terrible Alan Lewis after the pub at lunchtime idea, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal. I mean, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, So Jeff ended up doing both pieces. And I don't know who he did in America. I was was going to ask, yeah. Who at the time? I don't know. I think there was a band in New York called, like, Riot. Oh, yeah, Riot, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. You, you have to look it up. I can't remember. But suffice to say, none of those groups made it. While in Britain, he actually hit a, he hit a, a rich vein. I mean, um, the band in Sheffield was Def Leppard. The band in East London was Iron Maiden. Um, and then there was Samson and Diamond Head and all these others, 
all of whom turned out to be fantastic. Um, not so much Samson, but definitely Diamond Head. Um, and, but it was a long, long, long time before I ever thought, oh, oh, did I, did I, did I fuck up there? What happened there? You know, it was years later. I mean, I remember reading the thing when it came out and just having to sort of sneer, you know, <laughs> he's only gone and done it. <laughs> Fucking hell. So, and you know, uh, yeah, go on. I was going to say, uh, what what do you think made the bands like Diamond Head and, and Iron Maiden and Def Leppard stand out above the rest of the pack? Because there was a big pack, and many of those bands are still playing to this day at much smaller venues and smaller festivals. The same thing that always makes a band stand out, and that's the material. Um, there are other aspects which are equally important. You know, what do they look like? How do they come across? Are they good on stage? Can they can they really put on a show? But none of those, nothing gets you through the door other than the material. So it so happened that Iron Maiden and Def Leppard had gone down that punk road of uh, putting out independent EPs. The Maiden one wasn't at all independent. EMI were completely behind it. Um, Leopards, I think, was initially, and then Phonogram kind of re-released it. Um, Diamond Head. Uh, Diamond Head were the ones that were supposed to be the Led Zeppelin yeah. of that movement. They were the ones everybody was tipping for the really big, big stuff. Um and what buggered them up was the fact that the singer's mum was their manager. Hot tip, kids. Don't get your mum to manage the band. Didn't she turn down some large record deal or something in the early days, which kind of they never recovered from? They turned down everybody. I mean, Peter Mensch, who went on to manage Def Leppard. Peter lived in London in those days and was just embarking on his own career as a manager in his own right. He, he worked for Lieber Krebs, who did Aerosmith and ACDC and Ted Nugent and loads of people. But him and his uh, business partner, Cliff Bernstein, were just setting up their own management company, which became Q Prime, which by the end of the 80s, they managed Metallica, Def Leppard, Queensryche, um, oh my god, loads of people. I mean, they went on to manage Cameo, The Stones, Lenny Kravitz, The Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, it's endless. Um, and Peter was really interested in Diamond Head. Um, and that all came to nothing because mum, I'm sure mum was being, I, I don't know because I never met her, but I mm. imagine she was doing her absolute best. For her boy. Probably wanting to protect and, and protect her boy from the sharks. Yeah. Um, so Mensch passed uh, and picked up Def Leppard. Mensch also tried to sign Marillion. Right. But Marillion was so parochial, they didn't like the idea of an American managing them. So they settled for an English guy 
who was a, a decent guy, but was basically like the band's best mate, you know. Uh, tip number two, don't get your best mate to manage the band. Um, so number one, it was the material. You know, Maiden had some great songs, you know, Running Free. Um, I can't remember the early stuff. What else was on the very early stuff? Uh, Prowler. Um, they had an early single, Sanctuary, which was released on the Metal for Mothers compilation, yeah. I think. Yeah, that was a great track. Um, Leopard, for me, were the standouts. About a year after, a year and a half after I turned down the story, uh, we were approached at Heavy Publicity to see if we'd like to take them on. And they sent us a six-track demo. And at that time, we were working with Thin Lizzy and a few other, ACDC, a few other people. And it was fantastic. I mean, I just thought it was loving Lizzie as I did. It was like Lizzie, but not Irish. You know, the two guitars, the whole... I like the idea that they sounded like they had great singles as well as albums. Yeah. That, for me, was always the holy grail. You know, you've got the greatest album, but you've also got the greatest single, you know. Um, and we went... My partner at the time, Joe O'Neill, uh, we went to see them at the Hammersmith Odeon. They were either opening for Sammy Hagar or ACDC or someone. Um, and, you know, we, we are out every night seeing bands. We were not easily impressed. We said, well, we'll give it three numbers, fuck off to the bar, and we'll say a polite hello to them afterwards. <clears throat> Stood and watched the whole thing with my mouth hanging open. They were fantastic. Young, really colourful. You know, they didn't have that sort of maiden or Metallica thing of none more black. You know, it was yeah. all like bullet belts and armor-plated wrists. You know, none of that. No capes. <laughs> um, they, they just looked like they could have come from the glam era or the punk era. or They just looked fantastic, colorful, sharp, never stopped moving. And one brilliant song after another my, my favorite was wasted i used to love that song mm. wasted something 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 wasted something 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 okay Fantastic. but you touched on something there that i wanted to go back to so you said that iron maiden's ep the soundhouse tapes wasn't independent and emi were behind it i don't recall ever hearing mm. that before oh well perhaps you have not read my remarkable official biography i, I read it a number of times i don't remember that coming up maybe it was removed was it <laughs> Because the, the whole fairy tale is that they did it themselves on £200 over a couple of days, uh, New Year's Eve and the 30th of December 1978. Um, they pooled all their money and blah, blah, blah. But obviously that that's a better story than EMI funded it. <laughs> they kind of set the template because um, they did do that to make a demo. Um, but since then... I don't know about now because no one buys records, but throughout then the rest of the 80s and the 90s, it became commonplace for major labels to say, we'll put out a single or an EP and we'll say it's on your label because that confers credibility, authenticity. 
but we'll distribute it and we'll do all the publicity and get you in the magazines and get you on a tour and all that stuff. But that's your roots there. It's your grassroots. Now, I can't tell you sitting here, I can't tell you definitively what the story is there. But uh, I think if you look in the Rod Smallwood section of the book, pretty sure Rod talks about um, how that worked in terms of the EMI deal. Um, but I mean, you know, I wrote that book so long ago, Fergal, I can't remember the actuality. <laughs> I, I recall Rod Smallwood getting them like a five album deal with EMI based on the strength of the Soundhouse tapes and their, their live performances at the time. And he went around all the local offices and gave them a bottle of whiskey and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's, that's what I recall. <laughs> well, uh, that story Jeff wrote on the new wave of British heavy metal, that was crucial. That's, that was the starting gun on all the labels going, ah, something going on here. Because um, I'm always having to say this, so forgive me, but it's important to emphasize there is no internet. There is no social media. There are no phones. There's not even any telly or radio. You know, there's one national radio station in the UK. And they wouldn't play metal if you put a gun to their head. Mm. They had one specialist show that used to go out on a Saturday afternoon uh, that Alan Freeman did. And then when Alan Freeman went over to Capital Radio, Tommy Vance took over from Alan and they started doing it on a Friday night. They called it the Friday Rock Show. So metal was ghettoized in the sense that you couldn't hear it on Radio 1. Um but you could listen to it for two hours on late on a Friday night, you know. So um, unless you were a pop star that was going to be on top of the pops, the only avenue for album-oriented artists, particularly metal as it was then so unfashionable, were the music papers. And the enemy wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Melody Maker would do it once they got as big as Queen. Uh, and sounds unleashed would do everything and so um but that would guarantee you a certain amount of sales so a lot of the labels were looking at it like um and i sat in a lot of these meetings they were going well they're a metal band that means they know how to play because most of the punk bands did not know how even the sex pistols they had to bring in chris spedding to play the guitar and obviously sid couldn't play you know and um yeah. Uh, these metal guys could play and they had these songs and they spent hours writing these fucking epic songs we'll get them in a room we'll just record them cheap 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 bang it out sounds will cover it we're guaranteed 10 to 20,000 sales even if it's shite <laughs> um, and, 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 and so that's kind of what happened it's very short term you didn't care if they were around next year or the year after um, so the bandwagon, Neil Kay's bandwagon, had its own chart, which sounds would print every week. And the Soundhouse tapes was like number one forever. Partly based on the fact that Neil Kay really liked it. Partly based on the fact that um, 
the bandwagon became very popular and people started to go all the time based on the fact that they had this chart in sounds and Iron Maiden's tapes were number one. You know, it became a, like I say, no social media. So you had to, your little club, your secret society, your cool house was somewhere like the bandwagon. Um, and so it was all, it was all kind of interconnected. Um, but Rod had big label connections. You know, he'd been in the business already for quite some time and he had connections at EMI. And do you remember how you felt or what you thought when Paul Diano ended up uh, leaving Iron Maiden after the Killers album and was replaced by Bruce Dickinson? Well, it was a bold thing to do. You know, their, their first album had gone in at number four. The second album hadn't done as well. Um, the second album had a terrible review in sounds. Only two stars. The review was written by a female writer called Robbie Miller. And Robbie Miller, allegedly, was shagging Paul Diano. Ah, uh, yes. She, he, you know, he used to wear that gun belt. Mm. He used to tell people that she liked him to take that gun belt off and whip her ass with it. <laughs> okay. She was a northern lass and she knew what she liked. Um, and then, just before uh, they'd finished Killers, and just before they were sending out the promo copies, and again, don't forget, only four music papers, only one of which matters to Iron Maiden at that moment, which is Sounds. He broke up with Robbie. He, he, he you know, he was shagging. He was a shag master. He was a singer. He's fucking yeah. anything that moved. Um, so I don't know if she found out about it or if he just moved on. Because he was a geezer. I promise you, I'll fuck off, Robbie. Gee, I'm fed up fucking spanking your fucking ass. Fuck off. Guess who reviewed the album? Well. And, and guess who only gave it two stars? T- two was probably generous. Uh, she could have given it one. Well, it, Steve Harris, I met him saying to me, I told him. I said, you could have fucking waited till she reviewed it and then fucked her off. <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> that wasn't why they sacked him. I mean, it goes into this in the book, but um, there were lots of things. But the, the the final straw was when they had to start cancelling gigs because Paul was too fucked up to do the show. You know, he was a party animal. Everybody was a party animal in those days. Um, you know, these are the days of uh, go down the pub at lunchtime, have five or six, uh, go out again in the evening and have a drink. You know, you just drank all the time, mm. especially young guys in bands and especially singers. Um, and, of course, he would fuck up his voice. And by the time you get to the Killers World Tour, they're opening for big bands. You know, they're, it's no longer just a, a, a pub band from East London chancing their arm. There's now possibly millions at stake down the road. And, uh, and Paul made it worse for himself. He used to quite often uh, come in the dressing room at the end of a show and pretend to faint. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve said uh, it, it was it was amazingly lucky that whenever he fainted, 
it was always right on a couch, you know, happened to be a couch there. Yeah. <laughs> he never just crashed on the floor and smacked his head, you know. Mm. So they just got fed up with it and, um, and decided, because the next album had to be the one. After Killers was such a disappointment, the next album, it was Do or Die. And they were going to go to America and, you know, the meetings that would have been had at corporate level, international level, it was, are we just going to be written off as a joke or are we going to show them we mean business? And so they got rid of him. Uh, Steve Harris has always been very pragmatic. I mean, you know, he, he he would get rid of people even if you said to him, well, that could be the end of the band, Steve. Give a fuck. He's a cunt. Get rid of him. Um, and where they got lucky, because everybody needs luck, was when they, they got Bruce in. Um, I mean, it was a bit like a Premier League football team picking up a, a striker from a championship football team you know he, he he'd obviously done well in Samson he had a good voice on paper he kind of fit the bill but I don't recall I can't recall any Samson tracks particularly where Bruce sounded like he did in Iron Maiden you know that incredible voice no. that range that, um, his early nickname was the Air Raid Siren yeah Maiden fans used to call him the Air Raid Siren um, I don't remember any of that in Samson. Probably wrong, but I don't recall it. So they got him in because he was available. He was handy. It fit on paper. But what no one, I think, really anticipated was the huge impact Bruce would have. You know, th this was a guy who knew this was his chance. And he grabbed it. He grabbed it. And um, he was very lucky that Maiden came when they did. And they were super lucky that uh, he was the one they came for. Do you remember being around the band much at that time? I know you wrote a, a review of Power Slave, I think, in 84 for Kerrang, which you were then working for. Would you have been backstage? Would you have seen them in the flesh much? No, not really. My, my next brother down, David, he's seven years younger than me. And... Uh, when that first Maiden album came out, he would have been about 15. And he was mental for them, loved them. And a friend of his had a connection, and David had a chance to work for them as a roadie for a few shows. Um, so I did go along and see him um, with Bruce. No. No, with uh, with Paul. Okay. Blimey. Hang on, let me think. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. No, 82, that's Bruce, isn't it? 82? It would be Bruce, yeah. Yeah, was, yeah the air raid. Yeah, it was Bruce. Because my brother fancied himself as a singer, and he saw himself okay. in that... Bruce Dickinson, Ronnie James, Dio mode. Okay. So, yeah, it was Bruce, yeah. And and they were great. They were fabulous. But, I mean, you know, those are the days where I was, as I always say, I was out every night seeing bands, you know. Um, uh, so I probably spent most of it drinking and, and ligging and chasing girls, except there weren't any there, of course. <laughs> Maybe after a few drinks, some of the long-haired men might have, you know, looked... looked well now, Fergal, well now, we seem to be going back to... Uh, what's that book you're reading? Uh, um, Brian Gewertz. Je- what, who? What? Brian Gewertz. Huh? Look him up. Um, okay. So... Uh, do you remember in the mid-80s, there's a famous story, and you did cover it in your book, where Bruce Dickinson had submitted material for what became Somewhere in Time, and Steve um, discarded all of his songs. He didn't want anything to do with them. Do you remember hearing about a power, a power struggle in Iron Maiden between Steve and Bruce at the time? Bruce came to my flat. Yes. Um, he used to live in Chiswick, and I lived in Ealing. And Chiswick and Ealing are you know, a bus ride from each other. There's two suburbs next to each other. And um, I can't remember what the reason was, but he came to my house, uh, my flat, and um, brought his acoustic guitar uh, and sat in my tiny lounge uh, and started telling me all about how he'd been writing these incredible songs for the next Maiden album, the one after Power Slave. And... uh, I don't I don't think it was necessarily that they were acoustic. I mean he played them to me on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. He played me three or four. And it was very kind of, you know The men from the mountain, you know, <laughs> through the sky grained a thunderbolt, you know. Um and uh this went on, you know. And eventually, thank God, he stopped, you know, because it's good to hear on the record, but in your lounge, you know, you're, all right, mate, you know, take it easy now. Let's have a beer, you know. Um, turned out he'd been doing that to a lot of people. Okay. And Steve got to hear about it. But these things, you know, it, it's how it's how the information is delivered to you. And there were definitely a lot of people around Steve who go, like all kings, courtiers, that come running up to him. Here's Steve! Fucking hell! You'll never guess what. Bruce is going round playing people the songs from the... Oh, is he? 
Well, fucking see about that. You know, as opposed to someone not doing that uh, and maybe giving Bruce a chance to get in and play the songs for Steve. Years later, when I interviewed Bruce for the book, um, he told me that uh, the way he saw it at that moment was Maiden had done really, really well. Peace of Mind, Power Slave, Live After Death. But he felt they'd kind of gone as far as they could, uh, which was a long way and perfectly good enough. But it was like being... um, It was the same fear that Metallica had around the time of Justice for All. It was like, is that it then? This is us now. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. kind of like we're kind of like Motorhead, but a bit better. But we will never be Bon Jovi. Mm. Bruce's thing was, we're not Led Zeppelin. Bruce's thing was, this is good, but to get to the next level, we really have to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Power Slave. I'm sure you told me Loss for Words was one of your favourite tracks. <laughs> Bored Egypt. Honest to God. Uh, yeah, Loss no. for Words. It's I mean, just the time. Yeah, go on. It's probably 150th uh, in my top favourite Iron Maiden tracks. 150th in a list of 150. Um, that's a terrible track. I mean, it, it shouldn't be on an album. It should be on a B-side or, or, or something. Um, I mean, even the title... Loss for words. Get it? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, a slightly different era where albums came a lot quicker and you could uh, get away with a few more throwaway bits and pieces. Um, but I agree with Bruce. I, I, I think they had gone as far as they could go. I mean, for me, Peace of Mind is actually a better album than Power Slave, even though Power Slave has two minutes to midnight. I think Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is always worth putting in there. Um, Aces High was good. Uh, but I think Peace of Mind was a better all-round album. Uh, and certainly Steve Harris always thought that. So I, in retrospect, I have a lot of sympathy for what Bruce was trying to do. Yeah, He was saying kind of like, we've done Led Zeppelin 2. We need to do Led Zeppelin 4. Where is our stairway to heaven? Sure. I know, I know. The man from the mountain came down the hill. So, so well, like, I, I had heard that story before. but Because um, I told you it. That's why, yeah. No, but it's interesting to hear a different angle on it, which I hadn't heard before, was that Bruce was going around to many people, showing them his potential new songs for the the upcoming album and do you think that's what that's what annoyed steve more that he was going around town showing off his music rather than coming to steve and steve was putting them in his place or that steve just didn't like the songs i don't think steve ever heard the songs steve just said fuck that he's not having anything on the album right um he was professionally annoyed at that basically I don't know if it was professional annoyance. I think it was right. personal pissed off. What is that fucking guy doing? It's my band. I'll say what goes, you know. Steve was a dictator. Um, okay. Every band needs one. 
you know, in Guns N' Roses it was Axel, in Zeppelin it was Page, um, in Sabbath it was Iomi, in Purple it was Blackmore. You know, there's always one. So Steve was Steve was twenty eight at the time. You know, strong, strong personality, very much an alpha male. Hard case from the East End, tattoos, hair down his waist, when punk was everything. As far as Steve could tell, Bruce was a public school fucking Nancy. You know, oh, I do fencing. Do you, posh boy? Fucking fence this thing. <laughs> but the, do, you know, do you know what's funny Like to me is that like there's this discrepancy in, in their personalities. They're like very different from one another, but they've coexisted on twice. You know, this time for a lot longer. And like, it, like it, it's the fact that like the way you've just painted the picture of Steve there. That's the way he's often portrayed, like in the media and things like that. But that he coexisted with somebody who's so different from him um, for like decades. I just always found fascinating. Well. um, that is the story behind nearly all the great bands. Uh, none of the Doors could stand Jim Morrison. They fucking hated him. He was a complete fucking asshole, as far as they were concerned. Um, yeah. Axel and Slash. Very similar in the sense that Axel, from this incredibly dysfunctional, very poor, broken home, the kind of dysfunction you can only really find in the Midwest of America. And here comes Slash, born into a very rich family, uh, all of them in the music business, in showbiz, growing up in L.A., two completely different people. But you know what they say, opposites attract. And when it works, it works spectacularly. But when it doesn't work, it's it's a catastrophe. It's, it's the end of the world, you know. Now... First time round for Bruce, how Steve coped with it was, you know, everybody's younger. We're all coping with all kinds of shit we wouldn't even think twice about in our 40s. Yeah. They haven't made it forever at that point. They're still building the empire. Bruce is clearly an integral part of that because because all this fun i make of steve steve is very very intelligent he's also very very sensitive he knows what time it is as they say he understands things um but the iron rule is this is his band you know he sits on the iron throne he's the one with the dragons <laughs> Uh, and as long as that's fucking clear, you get to stay alive. Mm. Um, so how he coped with it first time around was he would never do an interview with Bruce. And you'd never see the two of them sitting side by side on telly or radio or in magazines. He wouldn't even sit next to Bruce on a plane. I, I think it was a final show on the Power Slave tour. It was in Japan. And it was like 13-month tour, the tour from hell. These days, that's more normal. Back then, it wasn't normal. It really did not come with a lot of comforts. Hmm. Um, and their tour manager, Tony Wiggins, I told you, his previous job had been with Gilbert O'Sullivan, 
And, and he was a terribly nice man. He used to wear a cardigan and slippers, you know. Oh, come on, Steve. You know. Um, and as the tour manager, it was his job to allocate the rooms where people sit on the bus or the plane. And the, the, the night before getting on the plane, everybody's drinking and saying to Tony, Tony, it's the last flight of the tour. Just for a laugh, you must seat Bruce next to Steve. So early on, they go, oh, no, fuck, you must be... I couldn't possibly, you know. More drinks, time passes, and you get into that zone of, go on! Tony's like, all right then. Oh, I suppose it would be quite amusing, you know. 13-hour mm. flight from Tokyo to London. And, of course, the band are in first class. But their personal assistants or anybody else working for them are sitting in economy. And um, uh, every one of them have what was called a Percy. It's your personal roadie. Oh, yeah. S Steve's Percy was this big half Maori guy called Rangi. Tough motherfucker, you know. So Rangi's sitting in the back of the plane, bander in first class. And Steve's sitting there having his beer or whatever before they take off. Next thing, in the seat next to him, Hi, Bruce! Uh, hi, Steve! You know, it's mm. Bruce! I'm writing a novel! Would you like to read some? You know. <laughs> Steve, look! He, Steve's eyes are coming out of his head. He can't believe what he's... Undoes his seatbelt storms to the back of the plane to Wiggins. The fucking hell, you fucking... Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'm terrible. Oh, it must be some mistake. You know. He goes, yeah, well, you go and fucking sit next to him. And Steve made Wiggins go and sit in first class next to Bruce. And Steve sat in Wiggins' chair in economy. Anything other than put up with 13 hours of fucking Bruce. So did Bruce know Steve didn't have much time for him? On some deep level, he must have done. But, you know, Bruce had this thing. We used to joke because uh, he wouldn't talk to you. He'd talk at you. Hmm. I remember he always used to look at, like, the centre of your forehead. And you got the feeling that if you just moved to one side and someone else came in, it wouldn't disturb him at all. He'd just keep going, you know. And we used to have a joke where we'd say, you know, after the gig at the hotel or some club or whatever, if Bruce captures you, what you need to do is get a fiver out and wave it behind your back so mm. that someone will come along and take that fiver and literally just shove you over to one side and take your spot because Bruce wouldn't miss a beat. Right. You know, he was so busy telling you how great he was and... He's going to pilot a plane. He's going to go fencing, and he's he's writing a book, and and he, la, 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 you know, mm. and everybody was like, "Oh, for fuck's sake," you know. Um. So I think I think Bruce must have known because everybody did try and well, a humour him and b kind of escape him. Um, mm. But he had that very public school thing of I don't know what it's like in Ireland. I'm saying this might be different for public school boys in Ireland. But in England, 
this incredible self-entitlement, this, this complete sort of lack of self-awareness that anybody yeah. might think you're a bit of a fucking arsehole. It's, it's the same over here, but a public school, what you're referring to as a public school, it's called a private school over here. But um, right, yeah, it's, the, right, it's yeah. the same um, kind of personality traits you're describing, yeah. I mean, broadly yeah. speaking. Yeah, just no, no uh, sense of I might be boring anybody or my wonderful projects might not be as interesting to the rest of the world as they are to me. Um, and it's kind of what makes them successful in some ways but also very boring to be around, you know, for a 13-month world tour. Um, second time around, we're at the beginning of the era of classic rock. You know, Sabbath are going to come back. Kiss are already back. Um, efforts are being made to put Led Zeppelin back. Uh, anybody that once had a name could come back the big stumbling block was always but i hate that guy mm. i left that band for a reason um i mean kiss are a great example of that you know paul stanley and gene simmons have hated each other's guts for decades and it just gets deeper and deeper um the mechanisms are now in place whereby you don't have to share a dressing room. You don't have to share that space that would drive you nuts. I mean, they started doing it, but by the time you got to the, the seventh sun tour of America, 88, yeah. the band are traveling in one tour bus and Steve Harris is traveling in his own tour bus. And his excuse at the time was, well, I've got my wife and my kids and the nanny. It's not fair to the boys that my screaming kids are everywhere and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a fair point. But it also meant he didn't have to be on the bus with Bruce yeah, and, uh, and listen to all of them moaning, you know. So, like, at, at this point that they turned into this kind of traveling machine um, that you hear about a lot of bands turning into, you know, they start off as comrades, uh, they get their early success, and then they just turn into this kind of uh, business enterprise, separate buses. Did, I like, I don't know if you were backstage at any shows before and after maybe the reunion, but if you were, did you notice any difference in what, it, what the atmosphere was like, what it was like in general? Um... The rest of the band, uh, well, no, Adrian left, of course. Um, Adrian and Bruce, Bruce had a good writing relationship, and then Adrian was able to work without Bruce. And I think they both felt completely inhibited in the original Steve Harris vision of Iron Maiden. And they'd already earned a lot of money uh, uh through having their songs on Maiden Records in the days when that sort of thing would make you money. So they felt comfortable enough to say, okay, I've, I've put in my time. I want to give this a go now and try material that Steve wouldn't want on an album. And of course it didn't work out for either of them. Hmm. And they eventually came back. Um, so Adrian always seemed like he was holding a little bit back. 
mean, he's a very reserved person anyway. Quietly spoken. He's not at all compulsive. Um, so he wouldn't necessarily have gone, oh, Adrian's a bit quiet, because he was always quiet. Yeah. You know, Rod Smallwood used to make a joke about saying, you know, when you get the menu out in a restaurant, by the time you've had your meal, Adrian is still choosing his starter, you know. Um, so he didn't really notice. He couldn't sort of go, oh, what's up with Adrian, you know. Hmm. Um, Bruce, uh, definitely, definitely the temperature dropped. After he put out that first solo album, he did all the young dudes and all that stuff. Um, I think he he really felt he had it made. Seventh Son was the kicker for Bruce, you know, because he came back with a vengeance on that. He wrote some great songs. It was their most successful album on this side of the Atlantic. And I think he was really feeling good about his chances. And I think uh, a bit like Robert Plant with Jimmy Page, you know, it, it was a dream not to have to kowtow to Steve anymore. It was a dream not to have to ask permission uh, to pursue a certain musical direction. It was a dream to have what you thought was a great idea, a cover of all the young dudes. I mean, Steve had just gone, fuck off. There's no way. Yeah. Um, and Steve would have been right because it was dreadful. But Bruce could do it. He had some success. So, yeah, it felt um, when Adrian went and Yannick came in, I thought they'd really messed with the balance there of personalities. Yannick was uh, a really, you know, wonderful guy. Um, but it felt a bit bolted on. It felt a bit like last days of Empire. It wasn't a surprise when... Uh, it was announced that Bruce had left. No, it wasn't. Yeah, mm. but didn't, it wasn't Bruce the one who wanted to bring in Yannick because he'd worked with him on his solo album. Or I know he'd worked yeah. with him on the the Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, which was a Bruce Dickinson solo song. Yeah, and then Steve Harris heard it and went, yeah, "I'm having that." Um, <laughs> it's exactly what he said. Yeah, no, I don't fucking do that. I'll have that. The- there seems to be a team developing here as well. But what I think is funny is that Bruce just gives it to him each time. Like, you know, like there was, there was the same with um, If Eternity Should Fail for the Book of Souls, which was many years later. Bruce would, had said he was writing that for a solo album as well. And Steve heard it and wanted it. And Bruce just gave it to him. And apparently a lot of Bruce's solo album was hanging on this concept and this song. But if Steve wants it, he seems to give it. Well, in fairness, you earn a lot more money by Iron Maiden doing it than you do Bruce Dickinson doing it as a solo artist. Um, sure, and- but in in 2015, how much money does Bruce Dickinson need, really? Ah, now, Fergal. I will tell <laughs> you, I will tell you now what my old accountant, a very fine Irishman named Frank Dunphy, once told me. This was after Sharon Osbourne had ripped me off for about a hundred grand. And um, and I said to him, Frank, what does she need a fucking hundred grand for? She's got millions. hundred grand to me is game changing. You know, hasn't she got enough money? Ah, now, Mick, there's no... I can't do the Irish accent in front of you. It's too cringy. Um... 
I thought you were doing well. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well now, Mick. One thing you've got to understand. There's no such thing as enough. There's never enough for these people. And, and in a way, it figures because psychologically, if they were the kind of people who went, oh, I've got enough now, they would never have got to where they got to. Yeah. If, if well, enough think- was enough, they'd have had a regular job and, and gone home at night, you know, as opposed to chasing around the world after fucking criminals and lunatics on drugs. Do, do you think, though, that there's this thing in the band where they still, that the, despite what their personal differences might be and water under the bridge and things like that, do you think they all still want to please Steve at the end of the day? They have to figure it in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I toured with Francis. This time last year, I was on tour again with Francis Rossi, um, who was 71. And Quo have had, I think, like 62 hit singles in the UK, 43 hit albums. Um, And he's the fucking boss. There's no mellowing out. There's no yeah. kind of, well, I've had a... There's that thing of enough. Well, you know, I've authored dozens of hits over four decades. Sorry, mate, what was your idea again? Yeah, let's do that. No, it doesn't. It just tunnels even more. I think the difference is, is that um, by the same token that Bruce and Adrian had a go and it didn't work, they made some good music but it finished their career. There was no career. Um, Steve with Blaze almost finished his career. Uh, There's some great tracks he did with Blaze I still like. Hmm. Um, But the last time I saw Maiden play with Blaze in the group was at Nottingham Rock City. Yeah. The last time with Bruce, I think, was Three Nights at Wembley Arena. You know, mm. um, so they all had to, they all had to come to some kind of agreement, compromise, arrangement, and, and the arrangement basically boils down to: Bruce can do what he's like as long as he doesn't get on my tits. How do you stop him <laughs> getting on your tits? We keep him as far apart as possible. Yeah, Bru- uh, Bruce's thing was: um, I'll come back. Uh, but I've got to have Adrian. Uh, and in the same way, I mean, at that point, they should have got rid of Yannick. But they didn't because by then, Yannick is now Steve's fucking man. Dave Murray was always Steve's man, but Dave really is pussycat. He never says nothing. Yeah. Not in that Adrian slightly moody way, mm. but in a real Cheshire cat. Here's a guy that was born fucking happy He's going to die happy. <laughs> he writes one song every few years. It's not the greatest song. It's all right. It's Dave, you know. Yeah, this yeah. dude is going to live to be 200. He's so easy going. So, <laughs> so not much good in a battle of wits. And then there's Nico. Well, he might think he's on Steve's side, or he might think he's on Bruce's side, but they don't fucking want him on their side. You know, he's Nico. Keep him away. Um, uh, so it was. It was a. It was a different way. Of, you know, they weren't kids anymore. They weren't building the empire. 
all their careers were fucked, or let's say they were at a crossroads, just as the classic rock thing is starting to really look enticing and lucrative. And they yeah. had promoters around America, uh, CBS in America, Sony as it was in America, saying, listen, uh, we can put some big dough into this, but it has to be Bruce. It has to be. And, of course, it has to be Steve and it has to be Maiden. So uh, Steve had a choice. Carry on with Blaze and end up doing clubs. Is the top hat in Dublin still going? No, it's gone a long time. I've heard it mentioned many times. So I think Nirvana played there years ago. Uh, first time I went there was with Ozzy in like 88. And um, yeah, great, great gig that was. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, they'd have been doing clubs. Uh so, so I, I don't think it's a case. You know, the, the way they were first time around is is gone. Um, and now it's just a much more worldly, pragmatic. You know, they're not doing thirteen month world tours anymore. They're not doing seven months in America trying to break America. I mean, what do they do there now? Six shows or something. Um, it's all well, South America. Yeah, it depends on the tour, but yeah. So it's a lot more comfortable. A lot, more, of course. There's a load more money now. You know, there's no money in records anymore. But in live, there's a shit ton. Hmm. Merch, there's a shit ton. Merch is what made Iron Maiden millionaires. Uh, not the hmm. music; it was the merch. I'd say it's still making them a few million. All right, we've been going over an hour now, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. One question I would like to ask you, though, maybe to finish up, is um. You obviously wrote the official Iron Maiden biography. They've re since released two editions with different people writing those additional chapters. You, you explained to me before why that happened, but has there ever been any discussion about you bringing that book up to date in the 20 years that have passed, or 20, 20 years since that have passed since you first wrote the first draft? No. Um, it's very, very complicated. Um, I was at one point some years ago going to write my own Iron Maiden book. Mm. Uh, and when Rod found out about it, he paid me not to. Right. <laughs> um, and then a little bit after that, or around that same time, it transpired because the book came out on Sanctuary Publishing, which was part of the Sanctuary Group, which was owned by Rod. And there was this moment in the early 2000s where uh, uh, Rod and his partner, Andy Taylor, um, were ousted from Sanctuary. In fact, Andy Taylor had to be escorted from his desk. And there was an awful lot of... this is There are computers at this point, but there's still a lot of stuff being just done on pen and paper. Hmm. And in order to transfer the assets and da 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 da, I'm trying to keep it short and not get myself into too much trouble. But there was a bit of shenanigans around the book, and it turned out they'd been selling it in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of places without telling me, and more importantly, without paying me. 
Right. And um, in the music business, trust me, they're thieves. You know, I mean, the promoter who did the Rossi tour, did the Thunder tour I did and some other things, a fucking thief. You know, just I didn't find out until until I found out. But the music business is a den of iniquity, you know. So this is commonplace. Um, but book publishing in London is not. I'm not saying there aren't chances and crazy people, but it's much more mature business. It's not thick kids off a council estate being ripped off. You know, there's smart people in publishing and they will take you to court. Uh, and the agent I was with at the time was about the most powerful in the UK with amazing legal team. And they put the frighteners on the maiden hierarchy. I don't think the band ever had any involvement in this or any knowledge, nor would they have wanted to. Artists yeah. never want to hear this stuff. They would pretend they didn't hear it. Yeah. Um, and so it muddied the waters. And, um, you know, I, I'm not that safe guy in a box. You know, one of the reasons I got the gig in the first place was because I was known uh, to be a member of the club. You know, I, I never wrote anything that would have embarrassed them or that I knew, you know, they would not want to be out there. Yeah. Um, and I lost that a long time ago. I left that club a long, long time ago. And um, a year or so ago, two years, Steve Harris, it was being hawked around that Steve Harris was going to do his own book like Bruce had. And they were looking right. for a, go a ghostwriter. And I wanted to throw my hat in the ring, um, but I never heard. I didn't go to them. I did it through my agent. And as far as, well, nothing happened. Let's put it like that. Um, but if it was someone like Steve, Steve was a friend. I, I love Steve. I so respect him. Um, I would work with him in a second. If he wanted me to do it, I would do it. Um, but it's, it's tricky because, you know, the people that made them rich made me poor. Yeah, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Fergal, a fine man. Do visit him if ever you're in the old country around Dublin way. He'll be there in a little backstreet tavern playing loss for words on the jukebox <laughs> and imbibing a Guinness with the West Ham United up the Amers carved into the white lush head of his Guinness. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh, my God.
How do I stop this, Fern? <laughs> 